So we've been here together practicing for about a day, engaging in this, in some ways simple and in some ways complicated and challenging process of exploring what it means to be present, to be awake, to open to our life, the life within us, the life around us. And when I come, as I have really had the, I would have to say, privilege of being able to do for many years, to come to give a talk in a retreat like this, I like to just take a moment to pause and acknowledge the, the sense of gratitude I feel to those who've come before me in this journey. The Buddha, the many expressions and incarnations of wisdom and compassion, including Kuan Yin and others, who represent and express a sense of what is possible for a human being, for each of us, for you, for me, for all of us. And some of what it means to come and be here in a retreat as we're here together doing is to begin to engage or continue in our engagement with that possibility, with that process of exploring and discovering in and for ourselves what is possible for a human being. What could our life bring forth? Both in terms of our inner condition, but also in terms of what we can contribute to the shared community of life. So this is not a casual undertaking. Perhaps that's obvious. Meditation has become something more familiar, more normalized in our world, in our culture, than it was when I first encountered it and in fact it was a pretty effective way to end a conversation was to just mention that one was a meditator and then usually some kind of shocked, stunned or anxious silence would ensue. Whereas these days of course it's very common for people to say oh yes I know I've done some meditation or I've used the app or I've been on a retreat or I know somebody who did some of that and they seem to have come out of it okay, so it's probably not you know, too scary or dangerous. And it's wonderful that this world of meditation has become something more normalized. Uh, when Guy House first uh, arrived in this part of the world, and in fact in Denbury, the village a couple of miles across the way, they thought it was some weird cult that had turned up and they were all very scared um, about this uh, bunch of people who sat around doing very little in a very organized way. And then when we moved to this building um, some years later, the local villagers were very happy in Denbury that we named one of the wings the Denbury Wing after our first home in Devon. And that kind of trajectory of movement is something that we go through ourselves as well. We might come to meditation, it's a bit weird, it's a bit strange, what's going on? I don't know how this works. Is it going to be bad for me? But perhaps we are here because we've heard or we've got some sense that 
Actually, maybe it could offer something powerful, precious, profound. And certainly for myself, I can say that I, I can't imagine how my life would have been. I, I've got no basis for figuring out how my life would have been if I hadn't encountered and engaged wholeheartedly with this teaching and practice of, of meditation, of what we call Buddha Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings of the awakened one, if we translate it into English, teachings of awakening, what it means to engage with the possibility of our human awakening. One of the things the Buddha specified for his followers, I don't follow this strictly, but I just sometimes like to name it, is that one shouldn't give a Dharma talk to people who are lying down unless they're injured or ill and need to be lying down. And it's one of those things because, again, we, we can sometimes sort of prioritize being comfortable. And comfort has its place and its value. And yet, sometimes we prioritize that over what can perhaps be more important for us. I think culturally and socially that's quite common. We go for what's comfortable, what's familiar. And in doing so, we sometimes miss or lose contact with what is more important than that. There's a natural, understandable pull for all of us, I think, towards familiarity and comfort. And I'm touched and, you know, moved to see again and again, as I do, in various places and countries and over the years and decades of serving these teachings and practices, that people come and put themselves in a place that's actually uncomfortable, that's difficult, that's unpredictable. And having done so, possibly not necessarily knowing that's what they were doing, actually, once they work that out, actually they stay. And it's like, how amazing that we're even still here after a day. Um, maybe that doesn't seem so amazing to you, but I don't take it for granted. Because for most of us, we're dealing with powerful forces that, shape and pressure us in certain ways that we we need to understand and the practice of meditation isn't about somehow producing a comfortable peaceful experience or somehow bringing our thinking mind to an end so we can have a break from its noisiness attractive as that might sound i mean there is an operation you can have which will do it but obviously we're not here for a spiritual lobotomy and yet so often we can be kind of orienting around, how does it feel? Does it feel good? Does it feel quiet? Do I like it? And I'm not sure that's the most important thing. Because something in us, I believe, is drawn to what is, what is deeper to what is more profoundly fulfilling than being comfortable or well-entertained or kind of just having a nice experience. There's nothing wrong with nice experiences. I like them too. But they don't quite do it for us, do they? I mean, how many have we had in our lives already? How many good meditations have we already had? You know, maybe you might have concluded you didn't have one today. but You probably had a good moment within it at some point I hope I mean did anyone not have a single good moment today you know and sometimes it's like that I'm not assuming that everyone did sometimes it's like that it can be hard sometimes 
And yet there's a kind of a materialism we can be caught in, which is about kind of getting the right kind of experience, having the right kind of experience. And from where I'm sitting, it will be a shame if meditation became a process of kind of developing some extra skills for getting the right kind of experience, being able to produce some more sort of spiritual ones. Because I think there's something more important than what our experience is. And it's really the condition of our heart and our mind and our world. And these things are not separable. The condition of our heart and our mind and our world all circle around and are affected by, informed by, influenced by the choices we make and how we act or don't act in our lives. And what we might notice is that we don't always choose the choices we make. Often we're compelled by forces that are unconscious or semi-conscious or even fully conscious but nonetheless compelling to us to act in certain ways that don't necessarily serve us, that don't necessarily serve our well-being or our world. So part of what we do when we come on a retreat like this is we begin to practice with that process. We begin to create a structure and in a sense you know someone was asking about the length of sittings today and it's like you know I it's a bit of a secret really I sort of Jaya sort of alluded to it but actually the truth is the schedule we made it up me and Jaya we make up a different one every time we do this when I do it with someone else we make up another version and it's kind of like okay we make it up but it's not a completely random thing I mean 30 minute sittings, 40 minute sittings, 20 minute sittings. The Buddha never had a watch. Really. It would have been impossible unless it was a random accident that he actually sat for 40 minutes. Intending to be just 40 minutes because I don't think sundials are quite that precise. I've certainly not seen any pictures of him studying one while meditating. But we as uh, modern or human beings of the modern, postmodern era, we tend to focus on such measurable things. But we didn't make the schedule up randomly. We made it up in such a way that we hoped, and without being able to do it perfectly, that it would be something that would be both supportive and holding a framework, but also create a certain amount of stretch for everyone here. Though, of course, for some it will be a little too much, inevitably, and for some it might not be quite enough of that stretch, where we go a little bit beyond what's comfortable and familiar and known to us. And just as if you've done any yoga, and I haven't done a lot of it um, over the years, it's something I've appreciated, but we, we know if we try and stretch our body, if you don't go beyond what you normally can do, you're not going to increase your flexibility or your range of movement. That's kind of obvious. And if you try and go too far beyond the normal, you can injure yourself, or in fact what you can trigger is your body's own protective response to pull back and say, no, don't stretch it that far. Does that make sense? You, you follow that. So here we try and create a situation where there's a certain amount of stretch. Because stretch is actually also the basis for grow in this context. And it usually means a little bit of uncomfortable. So we sit to see what happens when actually you'll be more comfortable to leave. Not because it's better to stay there forever. But because we learn something in that encounter with that discomfort. 
one of the things that one gets to practice as a meditator is choosing to consciously stay with something that one could escape easily. Like my knee is aching or my nose is itching. And I choose to say, okay, I don't think it's doing any harm. If I think it's doing some harm, I should change my posture. If it feels like this pain is not actually just discomfort, but it's actually creating pressure or injury, or I'm not sure about that, best to err on the side of gentleness and caution and just see what happens in that. But I know that an itchy nose is not going to hurt me. You know, no one has ever reported being injured by an unscratched itchy nose. But sometimes the whole system will scream saying, scratch that thing, scratch that thing, scratch. And it's like, oh, can I breathe with that? Can I just be still in the face of that urge? Because there are other urges like that that might actually be harmful if I act on them, that come equally strong. A reactive moment of anger towards someone that might lead to lashing out requires the same ability to recognize and just notice, I actually know I don't want to act on that. That's actually not going to be a, a skillful thing to do. To be able to feel the pressure of the urge and just say, no, actually I won't do that. Or to sit in a situation where one has made a commitment to staying there for something one cares about, even though it's become uncomfortable, even though it's become not easy to do so. And to see what's possible here for me. It's kind of uncomfortable to encounter our minds for most of us. Our minds and our hearts have experiences going on and thoughts and feelings. But some of the time, I think we'd rather not have. Did anyone have a thought or a feeling like that today? No? No? Some thoughts I'd rather not have? I mean, just sometimes we'd rather not have any thoughts. So it's noisy in here. But can I just go, okay. I could zone out, tune out, pretend not to notice. Still be noisy, but at least I don't have to feel what that's like. And you'd hear the invitation, oh, can I feel what that's like? That my mind sometimes just goes on and on and on. Wow. And there doesn't seem to be an off button. There's a kind of a growing that happens for us, a kind of stretching inwardly as we start to extend our capacity to accommodate experience. Just in the courageous willingness to meet it, the courageous willingness to turn towards it, to come back to it again and again and again. And to understand that in order to develop and to move beyond the limitations of any circumstance we're in, any particular point in our journey, we, we have to be kind of humble and willing to make mistakes and get it wrong. We don't know how to do what we haven't yet learnt how to do. So don't expect to do it perfectly or get it right all the time. It's like there's this tragic thing I think that happens for us that because our bodies have grown to their adult maturity or thereabouts sometime in our, you know, late teens or maybe twenties. And that's about, this is where the body gets to, you know, that's the uphill bit. And then sometime around then it starts to slowly and then less slowly and then rather quickly go downhill. 
So um, wherever you are on that particular trajectory, it's the body. But the idea that we've grown up when we're now adults, we can vote, we can get jobs, we can do things, it's like as if we've finished growing. And because we're adults, we're supposed to get it right and not make mistakes. And we feel embarrassed. We're going to get judged. We're going to be harassed if we do it wrong. There's an incredible blessing in giving yourself permission to actually be a learner here. To not know how this is going to work yet. Even if you've done it before a lot of times, this time will be different. And if you haven't done it before, how could you know how to do this? So, a kind of permission to make mistakes is really helpful when we're interested in learning. When we're young, we call it playing. It's not serious. You're allowed to do things to try them out and see what happens. A lot of the art of meditation is trying out the different instructions and possibilities and seeing what happens and seeing what's possible and what's useful. That's in the end the answer to all the questions, almost all the questions that get asked about practice. Like, is this right? Is that right? Well, what happens if you do it this way? Is that useful? Or what happens if you try and do it that way? Is it possible? And then is it useful? This is really the framework for life, to be looking what's possible and what's useful. Not settling for less than what's possible. And not compromising on your sense of what's actually truly useful or beneficial or wholesome. Making your choices based on that. That's where the deepest inner peace comes from. Not from quieting the mind, although that's part of it, but from aligning our life with what feels true and right and wholesome. And this is really the foundation of the Buddha's teachings. Mind training and heart training is in support of that alignment. And so the basis of that is being able to be present in order to see what's going on. In order to begin to understand what are the forces operating here? What are the patterns and the paradigms playing out in this heart, mind and body? And in the world around me too, because whatever you see in the world is not going to be unrelated to what you see inside yourself. And what we see in our human society reflects what is within us as human beings, both the beautiful, the noble, the profound, and the precious and blessed, and equally the tragic, the horrific, the desperate, and the, and the, the painful. All of this is part of our human world. So training, training this heart and mind. We're used to mostly stuffing it, feeding it, packing more information into it. That's what we got told was an education when we grew up, most of us. Absorbing more information and being able to manipulate or regurgitate it or apply it. don't know if any of you ever raised a puppy. But one thing about puppies is if you feed them, they'll just keep eating. If you keep feeding them, they'll keep eating and then they'll get sick and then they'll eat some more. So you just give them about what they need and then even if they ask you for more, you don't give them any more food. And they grow quite well on that. We're a bit like that too. To actually, a little restraint in how much we take in. So part of being on retreat is, we're not taking so much in, we're not feeding so much information into our system. 
And again, that's a little little tricky because we don't quite know how this works yet. We don't quite know how to be in that. And then there's a kind of a training to be present. So not stuffing ourselves with information, just letting letting it be more simple. As someone was saying, oh gosh, just walking bare feet and suddenly things seem bright. It's like, oh there's nourishment here already. There's There's actually vitality and richness here. But we've often lost our ability to contact it because we're so full of our stuff, of our life, of the busyness and all the things that have to be done in order to get ahead to some place that we imagine will be better than where we are. So not stuffing so much into our system. A lot of meditation is just practicing letting this be enough. Just whatever this is, it's enough. It's plenty. David White says, enough, these few words are enough. If not these words, this breath, if not this breath, this sitting here, opening to the life we have refused again and again, until now. It's like what here, what's here is enough if we open to it. If we're always looking for something else, if we're always looking for something different, it'll never be enough. And our world is choking right now on the effect of a human culture that doesn't know when enough is enough and is always wanting more within the finite circumstances of our existence. And sometimes we ourselves can feel too that sense of choking. So there's a kind of a just letting things drop away, letting things be a bit less full here. That can be uncomfortable initially. We might worry, will I get bored? Will I get hungry? Will I, what will I do when my favorite entertainment is removed? And yet we find that there's lots of entertainment here. I mean, some of it's a soap opera. We might not always like the storyline, but there's plenty going on. There's always plenty going on. And in terms of training, going back to the puppy, if you ever raised a puppy and you have to train a puppy, you can't live in a human world without some training. And it's a bit like training our mind, really. We don't actually find happiness in this world unless we train our mind. It doesn't happen by accident. And so when we say to a puppy, just, you know, heal, follow, stay with me. What does the puppy do? It runs away. That's what puppies do. So you say, come back here. Heal, stay here, be with me. Puppy runs away. Now, if at that point you get angry, say, puppy, I told you not to do that. Puppy doesn't know what you're talking about. It's not going to come back too quickly if you're yelling at it, is it? Do we ever yell at our minds when they run away? I certainly did in early years. If we say to the puppy, you know, puppy runs off, it wants to chase a butterfly, it wants to smell a flower, it wants to water a tree. Minds do that. They go all over the place. If we keep, oh, oh there you are. Oh, there you are. Oh, you've gone there? Oh dear, you've done that? Oh my gosh. 
puppies do such things too. You know, well, we better clean that one up. <laughs> and then come back here. Come back here. Come back here. If we create an environment of caring attentiveness and re-engaging with a puppy, if you yell at it, after a while it thinks, or if you, if you should strike it, this is a really un, unfriendly person. This first opportunity, I'm getting the heck out of here. It's a bit like that with our minds. If we give ourselves a lot of harsh feedback all the time, it actually means the mind tends to want to go away quicker. If we can just say, oh, okay, I can see you're distressed, or concerned, or excited, or confused, or sleepy, or restless. Well, that's where you are. Okay. That's where you got to. Oh, come over, just be here. Huh. It's like the puppy starts saying, oh, this person's quite friendly. Maybe I'll hang around with them. Maybe this might be fun, even. And so, too, our mind starts to feel more at ease to be present when it's handled with clarity, given clear intentions, but also held with a lot of kindness, and yet given space to be where it is. So often we respond to the fact that things are out of control, including our mind, by tightening and contracting. Like trying to keep it in control. Can I just stop it from going away? And yet, sometimes what we need to do is just give it space. There's a, there's a proverb from, from India which says something like, how do you fence in a rogue bull elephant? It's like, how do you fence one of those powerful creatures in? They can destroy any fence you build. And the answer? You put it in a really large field. There's no need to break down the fence if there's enough room. So sometimes with our mind, when it's agitated or distressed, that sense of, okay, how much room does this need? How much space does this need? How much holding can be offered to this experience? And as I said, this process of meeting and staying present with and not running away from, it starts to expand and grow our capacity to meet and to hold our experience. And therefore it starts to extend and expand the space that we have to meet and handle our experience. So there's both the intention and the willingness, but also the capacity that's developed in this process. And many of the things that, that are uncomfortable have a lot of their distress or discomfort in them because of the way we tighten around them. It's a, it's a biological response born of our you know, earliest ancestral beginnings when we were, or we, when our earliest ancestors were little single-celled um, amoeba type things floating around in the soup of the ocean, the first life as we understand it. And basically, they have two functions for survival. One is that if what you're floating around in is nutritious and yummy, relax and open and absorb as much of that stuff as you can. It's a bit like when we, if we like sunshine or warmth, we relax, we open, we want to take it in. We like things, we relax, we open. But if things are if you're floating around in some soup and it turns out it's full of toxic things that could kill you, you want to tighten up, you want to contract and shrink the membrane around your little single cell as much as you can so that toxic stuff doesn't get in. It's a very simple mechanism. Expansion, contraction. And we're made up of about, I don't know, is that 10 or 100 billion of those little things, cells, that kind of do this tightening and relaxing. 
mechanism. When we encounter something difficult, the habit is to tighten. And when we tighten, the space to meet and hold it becomes lost. So part of what we have the invitation to do is to notice that we tighten. Not to judge or blame ourselves if we do, but just, oh, tightening. Oh, my knee hurts. Oh, and I'm tightening my knee. It's like, this is really tight, so I squeeze it to make it feel better. Oh, actually that doesn't work, does it? That's not going to help. No, no, squeezing the thing that's tight. Hmm, maybe I could just stop squeezing it. That's a start. Already it's like, oh. And then maybe at some point I might let go. Or if it still is uncomfortable, I might actually feel that there could be some space possible in relationship to that which is difficult. Meditation will not take away the difficult experience of our lives because all life encounters that which is difficult. We do, I do, you do. Not solely, also that which is beautiful and lovely, but we can't just have the one and not the other. And so how do we hold that? Can we find a sense of expansion, of openness with regard to that? And this is a quality, of, it requires a quality of courage. It's a courageous heart. We've named very briefly that willingness to turn towards that which is unfamiliar or uncomfortable and see what's possible here for me. Because as we turn towards what is not comfortable for us, the sense of, I can't go there, or I can't bear this, or I can't handle this, starts to change into, oh, this is difficult, this is uncomfortable, maybe I don't like this or want this, but if I need to, I can handle this. If I need to, I can handle this. If there's no reason to, then I can step away from it. But if there's a reason to stay here, I can. One reason to stay is that I'm training. I'm developing that capacity to meet what is not easy. And that capacity is so important to us because so often we just turn away. We don't quite allow ourselves to pay attention to what is not easy. Someone was describing to me how just a little bit earlier today they encountered the, the farmer separating the cows, the mother cows from the calves, and just felt the grief of that in the service of our, essentially our human food chain, our human f food requirements or wishes, that separating of cows and their calves, mothers from their children. And just was there touched by it. And I was like, oh, to be able to be open to feel, oh, what is that for me to let myself feel that? To see this is something that happens here in life and may lead me to make choices in my own life about how I live. Not saying there are right or wrong choices there, but if we're not open to feel what's in this life, it's hard to make choices that will feel authentic. And if we aren't able to be present for those things that we find challenging and to allow that to inform the choices we make of our life, it's really easy to find one's life somehow out of 
alignment with what we care about the most. It takes practice to be able to open consciously in the face of the habitual and unconscious urges to turn away, to contract and shut down and close. It takes practice. It's something we have to learn. And we only are going to be able to learn it if we care deeply. Which I believe we do. All of us. I don't think any of us would be here if we didn't. And there's something noble about that. There's something noble about putting oneself in a place where one will be stretched or challenged in the service of learning, growing, developing. I was rather curious when I came to this retreat and likewise curious as I knew I was coming to sit down here this evening as to how it would be for me because I've spent the last little while of my life in a different situation than I have before. And I've been surprised and touched by how much of my meditation practice has found expression and in a different situation, which I wasn't sure I was going to speak about, and I wasn't sure I could not speak about, so here we are. Since I last taught a retreat here in January, I've been very involved with the climate emergency movement and Extinction Rebellion that some of you will have heard about. And in a way, it's a very deeply grounded response to an emergency situation that we're all part of. At an individual level, if we don't address the inner patternings that we have that lead us in ways that cause ourselves harm and others, then, then we find deep unhappiness. And this is what spiritual practice is concerned with, finding the technology and the supports to be able to transform our hearts and our minds. But our hearts and our minds, as I said, are also embedded in a society and a culture which expresses whatever is expressed through the individuals within it. And the, the destructive materialism of our culture is having a profound effect on, on our world and our, our own futures and the futures of all life on earth. And so I found myself moved to take my sitting practice out of the retreat center and onto the street. And uh, it's not that what I might choose to do is what anyone else would or should. But to have spent time cultivating a capacity to make a choice for what I care about is something I'm really glad to have spent much of my adult life doing. To be able to sit in a situation where one doesn't choose to move because it's uncomfortable or because there may be some risks. The Buddha, on the night of his awakening, he said, 
I will not move from this spot until I've realized what can be realized by human endeavor. I will not move from this spot though my blood runs dry, though my bones turn to dust. I will not move from this spot until I have realized what can be realized by human endeavor. And for me, something incredibly inspiring about that commitment, that devotion, that dedication, even in the face of considerable hardship, to something that feels most important. And the process of inner awakening and the process of outer transformation cannot be separated, ultimately to care for our own deepest well-being can only be done in the context of taking care of the well-being of all of life. And so I came to this retreat having spent two weeks living on and in and around a bridge in London. Some of you will have heard of Waterloo Bridge. And uh, it's kind of curious to be on a retreat here. Um, that was a whole world, which this is a different world. And many people there doing something in its essence not so different than what we're doing here. Making a commitment to something that felt really important, cared about deeply, and of value and benefit, not just for oneself, but for that which is more than oneself. So to look, to allow ourselves to look and see and feel, oh, where are we? Where am I in my life? To kind of just have a retreat, part of what it allows us to kind of get a bit of space and see, okay, where am I? Where have I managed to hold what's most important at the center of my life? And where have I not quite managed that? These are important questions. Not to blame ourselves for where we haven't been able to, but to notice it and say, oh, she, I'd like to give some more attention and support to that. And likewise to look into our world and to see, you know, what's needed here? What's needed here? When I was thinking about uh, the talk, as I often do, or reflecting on what I might speak about, I often find myself drawn to all the things that can have a really good joke involved, or some way for everybody to laugh a lot, because coming on retreat, it's hard work, and it's sort of like if a few laughs tend to go down well, and I kind of like them, even though I've heard all my own jokes before, so I kind of still find it fun sometimes, and, and it's like, yeah, that's really important. And somehow, this evening, that's not where my heart took me. And uh, it's kind of interesting, because we had a really lovely sunny day. It was kind of windy, a bit wild, but sometimes when you feel the, 
the warmth of sunshine and the coolness of breeze, that sense of connection to life is perhaps the the deeper thing that holds us and a little bit of, you know, humour or levity is, is nice but not always required. It's one of the other things, you know, as well as the schedule. It's like how much entertainment Jaya and I provide as part of that sense of how much stretch, not too much but not too little that we kind of try and calibrate. I'm letting into trade secrets here. Of course, we shouldn't have told you that because now you'll be wondering, you know, does that mean when they said that or didn't say that? Um, it may or may not. Some of it's random and accidental. I'd like to think it was all organised, but unfortunately, certainly not on my, car, my part. To turn towards what is possible for you as a human being. What it means to be awake. Which is to understand that what we are is not separate from everything that surrounds us, that we emerge from, and that we are connected to. To not live our lives as if there was something or someone else unaffected by them. One thing we're discovering, which some have known for a long, long time, but collectively as a society we're starting to wake up to the fact that there isn't somewhere else. You know, you can't throw something away, because there isn't an away, there isn't a somewhere else. Wherever you throw it, it's actually still here. And it might take a little time, but it comes back. And if it comes back to us through the food chain from far distant oceans and ends up on our plate, we realize, oh, it didn't go away. If we manage to insulate us, insulate ourselves from the effects of our social and commercial activity, it'll only ever be temporary because there isn't somewhere else. And so when we come to the level of meditation practice, it's like, oh, we're learning to handle the forces of craving that says, I must, I must, I must have this, even though we know we don't necessarily need it. Or, I cannot, I will not, I will not accept that, although we actually perhaps at some sense, can see that, well, you know, even the most difficult experiences, we're already handling them. We might not be liking them, but they're here, we're here. It's interesting how that works. So maybe we don't need to control and manipulate our experience as much as we might have thought. That kind of very common, familiar, and I would say kind of way in which materialism pervades our, our, our way of relating. It's not just about having things. It's equally about having experiences, wanting to have the kind of experience we'd like to have. Things are only important because they give us an experience. Isn't, isn't that the case? Because I feel good with it or not good with it or good without it or not good 
without it. That's why they're important to us. And things, those experiences are mostly important to us because that feeling of feeling good or not good tends to correlate with a sense of me somehow having a sense that I am that, I am good or I am not good. That we kind of associate and relate a, a sense of value to the felt sense of our experience dependent upon the things we're in contact with. So we put a lot of trouble and time and energy into trying to control those things and therefore determine how I feel and therefore be able to shape how I find myself perceiving myself. Spiritual teachings show us that all of these experiences, whether outer things, inner experiences, and even the very perceptions of self, they arise out of a matrix of conditions. They're not definitive of who and what you or I are. And as such, trying to control them, trying to pursue them, trying to have more of the ones we like, less of the ones we don't like, doesn't ultimately do it for us. If it was going to, it would have done so by now. Because we've all already had so many thoughts and so many feelings and so many experiences. It's the story of Nasruddin, the uh, Sufi teaching figure who's both a wise man and a fool. And one day Nasruddin is sitting in the village square on market day. And he has a large pile of red hot chilies in front of him. And he's eating them one at a time. And his eyes are streaming, his nose is running, his face is red. He's obviously quite in distress. And his friends come up and say, Mullah, Mullah. This is his formal title. Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? Nazarin takes another one and eats it. And his whole body shudders. He says, I'm eating these chilies. And they say, Mullah, we can see you're eating these chilies. Why are you eating these chilies? And he says, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. And it's kind of funny, isn't it? Because we kind of get to laugh at Nazarin doing something that we do ourselves. Which is, we keep looking for our experience to give us something it hasn't given us yet. Thinking that, if I just get it right, if I just find the sweet one, then I'll get it. You know? Thinking, oh, it's meditation. You know, sitting, sitting, sitting. <laughs> When's the walking? It can't be too long before the walking. You know, when we walking will be good. Walking will be good. Yeah, great. Oh, phew. Bell ring, ding. Ah, bell ring. Suddenly I'm happy. Suddenly it's great. Going out walking, 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 walk, walking, walking. More. Next sitting, sitting, sitting will be good. Sitting will be good. Another sitting. It's just another sitting. Lunch, maybe lunch. Oh, the afternoon practice. Maybe the Dharma talk. It's like we keep looking for the thing that's coming. That's why we're so busy with our future and our past. Trying to figure out how to get this thing to be in the shape we want it. Or to keep it there for the brief moments that it is in that shape. And yet none of that quite does it for us. And at some point we might consider pausing that process. To think, oh what happens if I stop that momentum, if I just pause, not stop, but pause enacting that momentum and see what happens as I settle more here. And see the stories we tell ourselves about what's going on. It's like, oh, well, this isn't working, you know, I can't do it. Or finally, you know, three quarters of the day, way through the first day of practice, there's that moment where suddenly 
I feel calm, my body's at ease, it seems like I'm present. And it's like, oh, now I've got it. I can do this, yeah. And maybe within two moments we're suddenly imagining this vast meditative career. You know, the long retreats I'm going to sit, maybe the image of, you know, taking the robes, shaving our head, sitting in a cave and, you know, people bringing bowls of rice as the, the light glowing pours out the cave entrance and we're sitting there. And then suddenly we realize on the basis of two moments of mindfulness side by side, we've projected this whole fantasy of who I'm going to be now that I can meditate. And we suddenly go, oh no, I'm absolutely hopeless. I couldn't even keep it together for two seconds. I can't do this. It's hopeless. I think I'll go home. I'm just out of here. I'm going. It's like, and again, we tell ourselves the story about me having a moment ago been a great success, now being a complete failure. And it was actually just a few moments of mindfulness followed by a few moments of mindlessness. And we've all experienced both of those, I suspect. And if we take away the story from it, it's just, oh, oh, that's what happens. But that's not all that's happening. Because as we sit with this, we start to settle more deeply into where we are. And as we settle more deeply into where we are, we start to discover that that very quality of settling in, of meeting, of being present, of turning towards what's here, has something in it that isn't the same as what it is that's happening, but nor does it arise separately from that. So it's a little bit tricky for our minds to get our thinking process to wrap around, so don't worry if you can't. But what's here that's fundamental is not just what's happening, the experiences, a few breaths, a few steps, a few thoughts, a few contemplations, some sensations, but nor is it apart from that. What is most important here? And from that, as we start to get a sense of that, and I'm not saying it's something that happens always quickly, it can take time, days and weeks and years perhaps, but at the same time we can get an inkling of it, even just in the context of a little bit of practice, a sense of something that's possible that goes beyond what we have known before. And that starts to become more clearly what's important. And when we know that, when we know that, it actually becomes easy to make choices that say, actually, even though it's going to be complicated or uncomfortable, I don't want to participate in something that's causing harm. Even though it may cost me personally. There might be some sacrifice involved. And sacrifice is, of course, the act of taking on that which is not easy in the service of something greater. And it has the effect of making both the action and the act of, into what we call that which is sacred. That is what sacrifice does. But it's sacrificing always that which is less important for that which is more, when we understand what is most important. That it's not really a, an option that one would choose to refuse, when we see that clearly. And what that also means is that we 
can find in ourselves the courage to stand up and say, in the face of what we encounter in the world that is harmful or destructive, no, I don't wish to participate in this and I do not wish to be colluding with those who do participate in such harmful activity. To find that courage is something our world asks of us. And equally internally, because the inner and the outer, well, they can't be separated because they're not separate. We start to see that, oh, I want to really find a way to listen to those calls of my heart that ask me to follow what feels most true and right. Even if that will cause me some difficulty or complication. And to say clearly no, not in a rejective or judgmental way, but in a sense of, I don't want to participate in enacting the internal patternings that are causing harm. And these patternings that tend to come, as I said, from those basic evolutionary biological drivers that at one level is to do with the tendency to contract and that express itself then, of course, from aversion, contraction into anger and tightening and shutting down or pushing away or disregarding the place and the value of someone or something else and therefore being able to treat it in such a way that doesn't honour it. Or the sense of, of need that comes out of a sense of survival and needing what we need to survive and then that becomes what becomes no longer need but in fact that sense of insatiable, unfulfillable wanting for more and more and more. And to say actually no, I don't want that to drive my life. I want to be in touch with the fact that I care and that I feel connection and appreciation for the life around me out of which I've emerged and to which I will return one day because we all do emerge from and return to just as each breath emerges from and returns to emerges from and returns to the cycle of existence being born from itself and all its myriad forms plays out unstoppably. And we can become more fully conscious participants in that. And there's a, there's a coming to rest in the heart that we can know. That is born of that courageous alignment with what we most care about. Which doesn't need someone else to tell us what that is or how that should look like. Because we can find that in ourself and for ourself. They're not somehow apart from each other. And this is really what the Buddha's teachings point us to. This is what the authentic spiritual teachings of the many great religious and non-religious traditions of, of human development and potential in our world point us towards.
and so this practice is something blessed and precious and sacred that we engage in here together and maybe those words aren't words that resonate for you and if that's the case that's really fine it might be words like this is actually really useful and wholesome and uh, of deep value in the end the language isn't what's most important but your life and how you live it is profoundly so So I think I'm going to stop there. Let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we find the deeply caring and courageous capacity of heart to meet our life just as it is and to allow it to flow from what we care most deeply about. For our own welfare, and for the welfare of all beings and all that lives. Thank you for your presence here, for your practice. It's time for some walking and uh, we haven't specified. So uh, this is one of those moments where, hmm, I'm going to suggest we 
What did we write as the finish time? At 9.15. So I'm going to suggest we take about 20 minutes now for some walking practice. And then we'll have about 25 minutes for some sitting practice and finishing the evening. So it's 8.32. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.